Welcome into the Hypertime, the Hypertime to Podcast. And I am your host, Josh Miller, and bringing the beefy podcast with me is my co-host, the podfather himself, Adam Muir. Adam Muir. Alan Muir. (laughs) Oh my god, this is going to be a a great episode already. I mean, there was a guy who used to work at G4 called named joel gardine and i had become i became friends with him uh, via myspace like in 2007 and he thought my name was adam <laughs> like adm because that's how just that was just my profile name <laughs> so that's the first thing i thought of so yeah usually i get mistaken for a jeremy which and i'm not really like, sure since there's you know a j and that's about the only similarity there but it's either that or people ask me if i'm if i'm in a band <laughs> Like I got my first year of college, I just got every time someone would like interact with me, like, hey, are you in a band? You, you look like you're in a band. Like, no, no. <laughs> well, uh, I almost want to keep calling you Adam now. Just <laughs> keep the gag going. But yeah. Alan, how are you feeling about today's episode? Oh, I forgot how good this book is. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've read it. I'm glad you wanted to talk about it again because it's it's really good. It. In my opinion, it's probably up there as one of the best, at least one of the best DC books. It's one of the best uh, Hal Jordan stories. Ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or is that or can be considered the the Hal Jordan story? It's definitely my favorite. I'm not really a Hal Jordan guy, but this this is a good one. This is a good one with him. So, yeah, this is going to be a big episode a based two-parter. on a two parter. Yeah, it's so big. We needed two parts in it. Um, based on the notes, I think it's about seven pages longer than my longest one, I think, so far. Uh, it's clocking in at 17 pages. Uh, a lot Lord. of it is the story itself. Yeah. But there's plenty, plenty to talk about with this. So felt it would be best to split it into two. So, Alan, is there anything about this book that you want to mention before we get into the thick of it? Uh, yeah, I have something to say. I have a comment. Darwin Cook was not a part of Comicsgate, you motherfuckers. Wait, what? Uh, okay, so you you've heard of Comicsgate and like, unfortunately, Ethan Man, Ethan yeah. <laughs> where he where he is now. Uh, they tried to pull his uh Darwin Cook's name into the mud, saying that he he was like he was Comicsgate before Comicsgate, and Darwin Darwin's widow just like she tore into them. Yeah, based on everything I've heard about Darwin, that is about as far from the truth as it could possibly be. I don't know where the hell that would come from. From people who want to either make themselves look better or take someone who was who's who is an icon, have them remembered horribly rather than <laughs> the way they should be. Well, it sounds like people have kind of disputed that pretty pretty well. I'm sure. Yeah, uh, this it happened. This happened like two years ago. It came from a tweet saying, "Thanks for the story about Darwin Cook tonight, guys. My favorite artist." Here's a video that shows he would have been Comicsgate at Ethan Van Skyver, Doug Tenable, just a bunch of other people. And then Darwin's wife or widow, uh, Marsha, said, hi, guys, this is Darwin's wife. And I can guarantee they thought you Comicsgate idiots were a bunch of crybaby losers ruining comics because you are. <laughs> um, and then 
That's awesome. that, that wasn't that wasn't the end of it. And she replied to the person, the original poster of the the tweet, saying, "Hi, Grom. I can guarantee fucking T. Darwin Cook thought you and your baby man friends were embarrassments to comics, and it can take a walk anytime." Beautiful. <laughs> I love it. And then, then like Ethan Van Skyberg was like tweeting, "Darwin always went his own way. Uh, always went his own way against peer pressure with his own conscience." When talking about like that, that sounds fine. But I'll I'll send you the uh, bleeding cool article. Okay, I'll have to look at that later. Yeah, because I don't know how anyone would come to that conclusion based on, especially the New Frontier, because it kind of goes against everything that Comicsgate stands for. <laughs> I mean, even some of the central characters in the book are very much. I don't even know how to put it. Like, it's nothing that they would are claiming that Darwin is for, you know? He's very progressive. He, you know, tries to write women very well and respectable. One of the characters in the book is, you know, when we get to it, is John Henry. Well, the John Henry analog of it. You know, combat the whole idea of slavery and all that. I am baffled that anyone would come to that conclusion. (laughs) Darwin would be pro comics gate at all yeah like anyone who read the beginning part wonder woman mm-hmm. like in her little arc with korea yep like if ethan van skyver was doing this story it'd be the other way around let's just move let's move on i don't want yeah. to do it this is gonna <laughs> this is gonna end up with me yelling for two hours yeah we'll move on so uh let's i'm going to start out saying that darwin cook man that dude is an amazing illustrator. He has a look that just bleeds like classic. I don't know if retro is the word I want to use, but he has this ability to really bring about this classic, like golden age appearance in this very, for lack of a better word, beautiful, just it's gorgeous art, the way it's colored, the bold lines, just everything about it is glorious. And there Sorry to cut you. I mean, oh, I mean, you're good. Off. Did you ever did you ever hear of the artist uh, Mike Parabek? Uh huh. Yeah, I think you were talking about him on the JSA episode. Yeah, like his art style was eerily similar to Darwin Cook's. Mm-hmm. And it was because he because of that style the style they had. It was according to Darwin Cook. It was very hard to get into comics, but as an artist with that look, and it's one of those things where you think where you're looking at it now as opposed to then makes you think it doesn't make, this doesn't make sense. Why would there be prejudice against this? <laughs> yeah. It's almost like a lot of times people try and go, I don't, I don't know if realistic is the way I would put it, but it's definitely less cartoony in the main books. Most of the time, there are definitely certain characters that seem to benefit from that. But oftentimes if you see it, it's, you know, how big can you get the muscles? How chiseled can you make their facial features and all this, but yeah, a Darwin Cook's style kept it commendable. I'm not, I'm not trying to drag someone's name through the, through the mud, but Ed McGinnis is uh, Superman looks a little, looks too, is like the other is like the opposite end of that <laughs> spectrum where it's to a point where he, it, he shouldn't be even be looking like that. <laughs> like it's a little, it's over realistic. Like muscles on top of muscles. and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, there's just like a simplicity in the art of Darwin Cook that makes everything stand out in a way. You know, it's not bogged down by lines just everywhere on a character. Like 
God, I wish I was an artist to <laughs> use the right terms, but like, was it cross hatching and stuff? How people will do that on faces and to make them look more shadowed and everything. And Darwin is just more, everything just pops as this very retro, you know, if everything had those, God, I really wish I was an artist here. Um, or those like pop art dot. Oh, so like the Kirby stuff. Yeah. Like I'm trying to think the Ben Day process. I think like Andy Warhol and all that, you know, if you put that like on his art, it would look like it fits perfectly. And his is just much more clean, simple. I I love it. And it fits this book so well. And I couldn't imagine anyone else doing this book. Yeah. And we're eventually going to get to it. But when we get to the animated adaptation, it is just so seamless. Like it feels like you're literally watching the comic come to life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did a great job uh, bringing that over into animation. Last time, last time I read this was I want to say four or five years ago, and I'd recently seen the movie adaptation mm-hmm. or the film adaptation, and yeah, that's, they got this completely right, or or they had they completely got like had it got it right. Yeah, we'll get more into the animated feature in the next episode. Uh, when we start comparing it and some additional details on it. So before we get there, let's go ahead and talk about how this book came to be. So Darwin Cook created a book called Batman Ego, which I've never read. Have you read it, Alan? No, I. looking at it in the doc is my first time even learning of it. It was my first time learning of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those covers I've seen a lot, but I've never actually been able to read it. But yeah, he had a lot of success with that book. And so DC approached him to do a Justice League project of sorts. And Darwin, he took a look at different type of Justice League stories that have been told, and he wanted to do something a little bit different. So he decided to write like a period piece of just before they became the Justice League. He was most interested in the time period that new that the New Frontier book took place in between 1945 and 1960 and felt he would be the best fit. Um, in one interview, he said he was basically a study, or not study, a student of its history and fashion and all that. Um, so he was very interested in doing a Justice League story around that time. The problem he had when he started writing it, though, is that it led to a lot of pushback from the editors. Many were trying to force it into continuity of the books. And so every outline that he made with New Frontier, he had to pass it through different editorial teams. You know, the Superman team, the Wonder Woman team, Green Lantern, all of that. And they were trying to bring it into where like continuity was at the time. So one example was they were trying to have Wonder Woman pulled out of his story and using Black Canary instead. Um, There was characters that were kind of written out of comics at that time that they were trying to switch out. Just this thing that was completely unnecessary. And so he had to continue to change his story to try and fit all of these different editorial team needs. But there came a point after a year where he worked everything out to make sense and continuity and then received a call from Paul Levitz. And Paul had asked him where this original story had went that he proposed to him originally. And Darwin explained the situation with all the editorial teams. And Paul overrode everything they had said before. 
And he told Darwin, just write the book you originally wanted to write about. Don't worry about continuity. And so anytime one of the editors would start pushing back, Darwin would, you know, just kind of throw out Paul, Paul says I can do whatever I want. I'm going to keep doing what Paul told me to do. <laughs> so he was using that as like a blanket form to say no. And during this entire time, he was getting a little burnt out after having already completed the book once. And so having to rewrite it again was not something he was eager to do. So before redoing New Frontier, he decided to write Selena's big score to see if that project worked out more smoothly before investing himself into New Frontier again. And he had started out doing Catwoman with Ed Brubaker, but then he would start working on New Frontier at the same time and things were starting to overlap to the point where New Frontier was taking over his life again. So what he decided to do was limit what he was doing on Catwoman at the time. And... Oh, yeah, I forgot he was working on that book at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Selena's big score, which was supposed to come out well before the New Frontier book did, actually ended up coming out after because New Frontier basically became the project he had to get done and off his lap first. And then since Darwin wanted New Frontier to be as accurate as possible for the time period, he did a ton of research, some of which we'll get into at the end of the episode. Um, not only was he doing research on, you know, structures of planes, but he also researched DC characters and tried to introduce them in New Frontier about the same time that they were originally published in the real world. And this is why, you know, as the Golden Age dies and the Silver Age comes about, he started focusing on those more Silver Age central characters such as Flash and Green Lantern. Although he did debate about having the Challengers of the Unknown as bigger focus uh, due to them being the first real big hit of the Silver Age. Yeah, that, that is true. The Challengers of the Unknown are kind of forgotten about these days. Challengers are one of those books that I wish would receive more acclaim than what it does. It's such an amazing idea, but I think it kind of gets overshadowed by what the Fantastic Four is nowadays. But yeah. And more recently, after Dark Knight's Metal, they had a sort of like a new take on Challengers of the, of the Unknown. Mm-hmm. Whereas exploring the metalverse, I think I would love to see a DC movie of the challengers of the unknown. That was one of those things that ever, you know, as they're talking about what movies to bring out from the DC characters in the back of my head, I'm like, man, challengers would be such an awesome thing to do. You could go so many places with them, you know, and it's not just another superhero story. It's more, it's real, real people dealing with, problems way bigger than what they're able to handle typically <laughs> i kind of agree i kind of would have liked more challengers in the unknown in this book but he still found a way to blend them in pretty well so yeah you're right uh or yeah show, showcased uh sex from nearly or from over 50 years ago or 60 i was gonna say didn't they predate the fantastic four yeah uh because this was a kirby thing too wasn't it yeah kirby like he re reworked everything in like f four years later in 1961. Ah, uh, yeah. Such, I mean, this is such a great idea. I'm surprised more haven't been done with them. You know, they show up from time to time. And I know one story I would like to discuss in the future will involve them on like a very slim level, but I've always liked the Challengers. I think they're really cool. But with that, I think we could get into the story now and try and knock out the hefty part of our episode here as we get into New Frontier. Issue one. 
Alan, would you like to take any of this, or would you like me just to kind of... I can't read right now. Okay, (laughs) I can do that. All right, so the story of DC, The New Frontier, begins in the Pacific in 1945. See a man and his dog in a cave surrounded by weapons and ammunition, writing a story on the cave wall. He's telling their story, uh, the story of the losers. They were on a rescue mission to save anyone aboard a crashed plane on a remote Pacific island. But as they got near the island, something big causes the boat to capsize. But they make it to the island, which, if you don't know what this book is about, is one of those things you kind of realize is foreshadowing of what the bigger problem is later down the road. Yeah. As they get their bearings, they notice a giant T-Rex, and the T-Rex notices them. The losers start an attack with a missile launcher, but lose one of their own, Gunner. They're able to drive the T-Rex away with some grenades, costing it its arm, but it was enough to scar Sergeant Cloud mentally. I will They're say a- the the uh, death of Gunner, that was like, like I had no, like I completely forgot about that character when it went the first time I read it. Mm-hmm. And like the way the way his death is handled, this character who you should who you shouldn't care about, but yet you do care about, is a testament to what Darwin could do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Darwin did a great job of because I mean it happens quick. It's not you know you barely know any of these characters when all of this starts happening, but Darwin has a great way of you know speaking through other characters about who this person is that just died to show just how impactful it was for all those other characters and you you know it takes its toll on these characters as they're all here on the island darwin was did a very great job and considering he had to limit what he did on the island as well um in terms of writing i think it still worked out pretty well for him So from there, uh, they're able to locate a cave that shows signs of other people being there. Um, They're finding uh, rations. Jesus, I can't talk today. Rations, weapons, and more, um, all from different troops around the world. Uh, They decide to wait there and see if anyone who they were sent to rescue will show up. However, the next morning, Skipper and Cloud are startled awake by rocket fire and then quickly learn that the Tyrannosaurus wasn't the only dinosaur on the island. Um, It's this kind of beautiful scene where they look outside the cave and you see, you know, pterodactyls and everything in the distance, you know, now that it's daylight and they're kind of getting a better view of what (laughs) exactly they're in. So as they investigate, think it's Sergeant cloud. They are attacked by a pterodactyl. They fight back, but skipper ends up being carried off. When cloud returns to the cave, he is met by one of the men they were sent to rescue Colonel flag who tells cloud that the Sergeant didn't make it flags crew. Didn't make it either. Uh, but he has the papers that were important to the mission, so they decide to make their escape. When they find their lifeboat, Cloud decides he will force Flag to leave the island and complete his mission. However, Cloud already had his brothers lost there, and he finds it his responsibility to take down the T-Rex that killed Gunner. So Cloud goes on a search and comes across the T-Rex after spending one last night beside his fallen brothers, but forgets one thing that Flag told him, and that's Flag set traps around the island. One giant blast later, Cloud is looking worse for wear, and his dog companion dies. Cloud stands up, pulls the pins on the grenades he has, and leaps off the cliff into the open mouth of the T-Rex. And that's the end of The Losers. So the next few pages kind of bring the reader up to speed about what's going on in the rest of the world. After World War I, people thought superheroes weren't necessary, despite many problems happening in society, from racism 
free speech violations, basically everything we're still dealing with today. The Spear of Destiny was held by the Nazis, which kept heroes at bay, leaving okay. World War... Nope, sorry, what was I, that? I will say I, I do like how that, as cheesy as it sounds, like invoking the Spear of Destiny. <laughs> uh-huh. It is a good way to 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 cut like to cover what like why I think it was I forget which magazine it was, but during World War II they had Superman or they had Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. They had them. Uh, it was like a magazine. They had basically a story a thing called How Superman Would End the War. It is about he basically flies to Germany, gets Hitler, goes to uh, J- Japan, gets Hirohito, and just. The quickest thing, and it's one of those things where, like, in Captain America, he punches Hitler, and it just didn't feel like something didn't feel right. I'm talking about way in the for- and like, all the way back in the 40s, like, when the war was still happening. Mm-hmm. Like, Superman could stop the war, but what happens next day in the real world? And it's just having a, having something that could directly say, like, this is the reason that Batman and Robin encourage people to buy war bonds how Superman would encourage people to uh, recycle so more munitions could get created. It's a great way of being respectful of the people who fought overseas. Yeah, you can't forget, like, with all these heroes that would have been running around at the time, that there's no good reason, you know, outside of something like the Spirit of Destiny, why any of this would continue to happen, since heroes could pretty quickly put an end to any and all wars. So having, you know, something like the Spear of Destiny as kind of this easy way to keep that from being resolved so easily is a pretty good way to do it. While also not being like, oh, hey, thanks, all the soldiers. Really, it was the superheroes who did all the work. You were all the ones who died, but, you know, we're going to reward all these superheroes with the fame and popularity and all that. Yeah, I don't know if you, if you watch The Boys. Not yet. I want to. Current the current season has like Homelander and basically the Superman Wonder Woman esque mm-hmm. characters has them in Iraq, <laughs> based not even doing any like stopping the war, but just like doing like motivational stuff. <laughs> like there's a, there's a point where even superheroes can't save everything. Yeah, they can't end everything. See, as we mentioned, the Spirit Destiny it was held by the Nazis to keep heroes at bay during World War Two. And left in the hands of normal people, but nuclear war was potentially on the brink. Um, superheroes in the U.S. were deemed vigilantes and needed to either unmask or retire, resulting in the end of the golden age of superheroes. JSA retired. Spectre didn't care. Captain yeah. Marvel disappeared. <laughs> uh, Spectre, in the panel, it says he wasn't of this Earth, or he wasn't tied to to Earth. And then with Captain Marvel, I keep forgetting what the, like it was something like he he stayed patriotic and like kept his head down. Again, I'm going to bring up the the animated movie. Like it does a great job of like showcasing JSA retiring. You just see them going to the right, and then in the film you see them just fading out. I'm trying to remember the animated film. They did all that stuff like in the opening credits too, didn't they? Yeah, it was really fast. It's blink. It's a one of those blink and you'll miss it type things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so outside of the JSA and all them, Batman was someone who government tried to stop him. <laughs> they failed, but they were trying. Uh, and Our Man didn't give up. Nope. And I, I love the panel where Our Man jumping across rooftops. Mm-hmm. 
and the cops are trying to follow suit. And like one make you'll see one make it, one <laughs> just ho- holding on, then one just falls like in between, most likely dying. Yeah, the government at the time really wasn't trying to deal with any of that. You know, Wonder Woman and Superman joined them to try and help the government enforce all this foreign policy co- covertly. But yeah, a lot of heroes just wasn't going to deal with it. You could say, I think this is a better Civil War story than Civil War. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it is. So, yeah, there's a new frontier has a lot of different flashing scenes, you know, right after they kind of explain what happened after World War One, they moved to us seeing a young Hal Jordan looking for his hero in a bar. They mentioned that Hal's dad used to fly with him and gets the man to sign a model airplane. Not just any man. Chuck Yeager. Yep. <laughs> as soon as I read that, I had a little internal giggle because <laughs> in the uh, documentary Secret Origin, the story of DC Comics, Ryan Reynolds, who's narrating the, the documentary, describes Hal Jordan as a comic book Chuck Yeager. And I was like, uh. <laughs> and like, this has the innocence that the way that young Hal was written compared to how uh, Jason Todd was written in the 80s mm-hmm. was day and night. Hal is just like the kind of son you want. Meanwhile, Jason Todd tried to jack the Batmobile. <laughs> yep. But couldn't. So he just tried to take the hubcaps. And I, they do a better job in this, like in this short bit with young Hal than they did in the Green Lantern movie where it's all played up. Yeah. I want to know if, do they even show his dad dying in this book? No, they don't. They just, they mention what happened. And that that he died. Too often writers are like, oh, here's a scene where you see how dad's airplane blow up in the sky. But again, Darwin just it's not necessary. Like you can show easier ways to connect with how than oh, here's a boy losing his father. I mean, tragically, you can. And they kind of, they kind of did that with uh, identity crisis. Yeah, they did a lot of things with identity crisis. <laughs> For better or for worse. So here we see uh, Gotham City in 1952. The scene that we were talking about with our man uh, running across the rooftops. Um, unfortunately, uh, four policemen and our man all fall their deaths. And we learn in the paper written by Iris West, not only the outcome of our man, but also other cases involving uh, the so-called un-American activities. Uh, we learn the president tried to have Superman round up Batman and failed. We are told that Task Force X, also known as Suicide Squad, is led by Rick Flag and more. Next, we see Hal Jordan again as some dogfighting is happening in the sky. Him and Ace Morgan are in battle with some other pilots, and Hal's plane gets shot down. He is injured during it and passes out, but Ace is able to rescue him during freefall and pulls a chute. At the same time, we see Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen hopping aboard a helicopter and are about to fly over where Hal Jordan soon lands, which... I love Darwin Cook writing Lois Lane too. Yeah. Which bringing up Comic Skate again, Lois is like the antithesis to everything they stand for. So again, I'm not sure how they came up with that idea. Like Lois is this stubborn, but incredibly brilliant and knows exactly how to get what she needs. It's, oh, I love the way Darwin writes her. It's fantastic. She's like, Jimmy, you've got to be taking notes on this because I let me show you how it's done. 
So commissions how Jimmy faked having press credentials. And (laughs) I think they said something about him smuggling himself over. I think so. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's just it's so good. So yeah, they're on their way to fly over kind of where Hal Jordan ends up landing, um, which is actually on top of a Korean soldier who, you know, as Hal kind of gets his bearings together, the Korean soldier comes back and as Hal fires a signal flare to be rescued, it also catches the eye of other Korean soldiers. But the one he lands on gets back up and tries to kill Hal. But then Hal does unthinkable after failing (laughs) well yeah each panel has his internal thoughts him just desperately trying to think of how to tell the the guy that the the war is over Mm -hmm. and he has no chance like hey he doesn't know the words and this is what they got just nailed in the animated movie like this whole the whole sequence yeah yeah so how shoots the korean soldier in the head I thought I thought it was in the uh, like right right in the cheek, under right underneath the guy's eye. I think it, I think it was yeah, because it has if I remember right the panel shows like it right up against his cheek and you see the soldier's eyes like come to the realization that he's gonna die like right there. And it goes to a red bam. Mm-hmm. And then from there, uh, the helicopter that Lois and Jimmy are in sees the flare and. They pull Hal aboard, and it's there that he's kind of in shock, but he finally remembers the Korean well, language <laughs> needed not, to end the war. It's not just that him, like he remembers, he he's constantly repeatedly saying the same thing over and over, and they're, and they're like Jimmy and Lois are like, "What's he saying?" The pilot tells them that it's in, it's Korean for the war. The war is over, mm-hmm. and you get you get a little bit of PTSD with Hal. Yeah. So from there, we see another flash to a different part of the world. We see the origin of another character taking place in an observatory where an old man is apologizing to the shadowy figure about bringing him to Earth from Mars. The figure stands up. We see that he's green, bipedal, and humanoid, but he is definitely not human. And during the conversation, has a heart attack. Yep. Or which has been the over and over origin for... Uh, Martian Manhunter. Mm-hmm. And because of that heart attack, it kind of leads him to change his appearance later on to something that will not invoke the same reaction from other he, people. Yeah, he he doesn't do it in this, but he does in the, in the animated feature. If, I'm, if I recall correctly, he takes the form of the scientist mm-hmm. as a way just to get out of there without getting killed. Uh, do you want me to take this part? Sure. So another flash this time to Indochina, where Superman discovers a destroyed village with dead men. He hears some celebration and investigates to find Wonder, Wonder Woman surrounded by other women. Superman came in search of Wonder Woman, who went AWOL two weeks prior. During a mission to bring back an airplane and its American men, she noticed a rebel camp with women held in cages. Wonder Woman gave back control of the camp to the women and disarmed disarm the men like I said, free free the women, and she gave the women all the gu- the guns that the men had. She gave them a choice, and they ended up gunning down the men who had killed their families and raped them. Yeah, this is easily one of my favorite scenes in the entire book. Yeah, it's... because it's something we we had not seen that much, like to begin with. It's a different 
It's how Wonder Woman should be written. It's fantastic. I meant to put a quote in here, which of course I left my <laughs> tablet upstairs that had the quote on, so that's not going to work. But yeah, it was basically her just going to town on Superman, just telling him that the government is using them for their own means, that they need to stand up for what they believe in also. And if that means not working with the government, then so be it. Okay, I do have my tablet with me. Is it the one where, when it comes to Washington, like wanting an explanation for the whole thing? Can't remember. I know. I think it's like right before he send or she sends him packing. Uh, you can tell them I'm over here winning the hearts and minds of the disenfranchised. Yeah, basically everything she tells Superman here. I just absolutely she's standing up for her own beliefs and that she's willing to cast aside everything that the government's trying to make her do. And there's also a good scene here where, you know, the entire time she's basically sitting down so you don't really see them standing up side by side. And then she finally stands up next to Superman and she's towering over him. (laughs) And it's such a great scene to show like, oh yeah, she's she's an Amazon (laughs) who are typically well-built women who are warriors and are not as small and petite as they're often shown in the comics and stuff. So from, yeah, from there we see Gotham city again, um, this time in 1955, uh, Darwin has no problem just kicking ahead a few years every once in a while. Um, we see the Martian watching TV again, another scene I love from this book. Oh, um, his- uh, so I think I found the quote. This is civil war. I've given them their freedom and a chance for justice. And she points a finger at Superman, the American way. And it's, and Superman has his golden age outfit, like right at the time of truth, justice, American way. It's such a good scene. It's pulled off very well in the animated movie as well. So yeah, we see the Martian watching TV, his intake of various programs uh, leads him to his moral stance of good versus evil. Uh, specifically detective shows, and he decides to take up the persona of John Jones, police detective. Prior to this, he was, he he took the form of Bugs Bunny, which I liked. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then we see kind of the next few years, um, all is a flash. Speaking of flash, we see Barry Allen being hit by lightning. Uh, we see Russia taking to the stars and Eisenhower pledging to fight communism and beat the Russians in their space effort. And then we see John Jones again in 1957 in Gotham City. Um, he is on a case with Slam Bradley to find a missing child. Uh, Slam John, Bradley, who we, we had mentioned, who we mentioned on the first episode, Action Comics number one. Yeah, when we were recording episode one is when I was starting to read <laughs> this for this episode. Oh, I, I, knocked it, I knocked out the entire por- like portion I was supposed to read today. I think it's <laughs> like originally I didn't like I was just read issue by issue. Mm-hmm. But as I was getting into it, it was like, I want to keep going. And I just felt a little, little mad that I had to stop. <laughs> so yeah, to hear that, we notice that John gets these hunches that are almost always correct. So one of his hunches leads them to a church where they bust in, but they're not the first ones there as they catch the Batman fighting some cultists. However, as the place catches on fire, John becomes immobile, kind of struck with fear from the fire, which, as we find out later on, Batman takes note of. Despite his incapacitation at the sight of fire, the child is saved by Batman, who's terrified of him. 
the iconic panels where the child goes to slam where in the in the, in the movie it's john who the little boy runs to which is a little commentary there where he run, unknowingly runs into it like runs the martian rather than the human mm-hmm. yeah also sets the scene for batman realizing that if he wants to help everybody he needs to also have a appearance that isn't going to frighten some of the people he's trying to save and that gets changed later on in the book as well so yeah as john locates a book and takes it home with him uh, there is an ominous threat of the center being spoken by a cult leader which is not the first time we we will hear of the center but this is kind of the first real showing of this future threat that kind of tie everything together and be the end game of new frontier. And so we see chapter five beginning with a boxing match between Ted wildcat grant and a man 12 years younger than him by the name of Cassius clay in Las Vegas. Uh, various familiar faces are in the crowd, such as Bruce Wayne, Dinah Lance, Ollie queen, Lois lane, many more uh, clay almost wins by KO until grant is saved by the bell. But the following round, Grant comes back and wins. Soon after, a celebration is being held. Hal and Ace are telling stories to a couple of women. Other heroes are having conversations. And then everything is kind of broken apart as Captain Cold plows through the wall <laughs> of the celebration. Captain Kool-Aid, Cold. <laughs> Cold-Aid. <laughs> Which, of course, you know, poor Captain Cold doesn't catch a break because <laughs> Iris is on the phone with Barry. And he hears her cries for help as Cold freezes her hand. So Barry grabs his flash suit and darts out towards Vegas. Before he does anything else, he thaws out Iris's hand, gives her a quick little smooch, which I thought was absolutely sweet. (laughs) And starts going at Cold, who diverts him instead to different bombs around the city. But as he's going around picking up all the bombs, he realizes Cold lied to him about one of the bombs to keep him busy during the escape but doesn't fall for it and ends up capturing cold. This results in one of the scenes that Darwin really wanted to write about and draw, which was it's snowing in Las Vegas. Yeah, that. And I think, is it before this or after this where I think it's Ollie who's uh, who mentions contacting Jay when they're, when they're talking about after uh, flash. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Which is like just that with fan service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Darwin does such a fantastic job of, like showcasing everything being in one world, even without showing everybody in front and center. You know, there are definitely characters that get the majority of the screen time in this book, but I don't feel like it's ever at the behest of everyone else. He does a great job of still giving everybody like an equal amount of character, even if they're barely showing up. So from there, we cut to just after where Hal is having a heart to heart with Ace tells Ace what happened in Korea and how he feels like damaged goods and not happy with where he is in life at the moment. Ace gives him some good news, though, and he got Hal an interview with Carol Ferris to join Ferris Aircrafts. Chapter six starts here with another flash to seeing uh, Daredevil Matthew Ryan having a nightmare of a plane crash he and his friends were in and that they all should have died in. He drives off in hopes to get some answers about why he keeps dreaming the same thing. And then we see the scene with Hal and Carol having dinner for an interview. He passes with flying colors and flirts his way into the heart of his soon-to-be boss, which I like that scene as well, where she's like, I don't typically drink or have relations with 
my she, employees. <laughs> yeah, she says I don't get involved with my employees, and Hal says <laughs> I don't I, I don't start for two days. <laughs> and so he great. just the look on Carol's face says it all. Mm-hmm. And what's she say? Like I'll have one too, or something to the waiters. It's just it's good. <laughs> Darwin has a great way of writing stuff like that. So the flashback to Matthew Ryan um, stopping at the site of the plane crash he was in. And to his surprise, his other friends are there as well for the exact same reason. They're having similar nightmares and are being pulled to the same spot. Thus, the reuniting of the challengers of the unknown. There is another scene in Knoxville, Tennessee, a burning home and disappearing hoods. We see a black man falling to the ground with a noose around his neck who saw his whole world destroyed. He had to listen to his wife and child scream until they couldn't anymore in their burning home. And we see the man getting up and walking into the distance in search of what he calls the triangles. Next scene showcases Task Force X in battle with a pterodactyl. Uh, the beast grabs one of their men named Evans and flies off with him. Evans uses thermite to explode in the air right above the Statue of Liberty. And then during the funeral, Flag mentions that he has seen something very similar before on an island in the Pacific. And so, as I mentioned before, stuff that you would think would tie together. Darwin is starting to kind of connect the dots in several places. Darwin flashes back to Tennessee again. We see the story of John Henry being told as shadows show a man with a hammer in his hand. Exertion creation of a hammer and then in california hal is heading towards ferris airfield where he comes across colonel flag waiting to meet him and it's clear they will get along just fine we see hal starting to be tested he's in a container and dropped into the water during this time he reflects on a letter he wrote to his brother detailing the various exercises being conducted on him he mentions he is falling head over heels for carol and how him and flag aren't exactly friends hal like every other test, passes with flying colors, and after a quick jab at the colonel, Hal is told about Task Force X and Flag's history. Again, Tennessee. Black people are being murdered, churches are being burned, and some Klansmen are on the hunt. However, they learn that they are being hunted by a black man with an axe to grind, or in this case, two very large hammers. Next scene is with John Jones. He goes to the movies where he sees a Superman cartoon, which is modeled after the like old Fleischer cartoons and a newsreel about the challengers of the unknown. A movie starts about humans meeting a Martian, not realizing it's not a comedy. John cracks up at the bad dialogue and horrible props. He just gets a kick out of what their interpretation of Martians are in this very cheesy you know, 1950s flick. Oh, Upon- He'd love what's going on on the on, uh, history channel right now. <laughs> <laughs> Ancient aliens. Yeah. Or it's it's pretty good. You can just flash forward 50 years, 50, 60 years in the future. He was listening to Coast to Coast AM. (laughs) Yeah. So after the movie, John goes back to his apartment. Um, He is met by Batman, who seems to know there's more to John. He's looking for more information about the night at the church from 18 months prior. And he wants to work together, but gives a warning to John in case his trust is misused. And yet another quote that I absolutely love where Batman says it took a $70,000 sliver of meteor to stop the one in Metropolis with you. All I need is a penny for a book of matches. Just fear inducing. I love how quick (laughs) Batman gets to the point of that. So in Washington, D.C., we see Wonder Woman receiving a diplomatic citizenship to the USA. 
Um, during her speech, Nixon cuts her off, and shortly afterwards, Wonder Woman is told to have an extended vacation and that she essentially isn't needed anymore. We cut to Hal and Carol driving in the desert. Carol has a surprise for Hal by showing him the true Ferris aircraft. Uh, they seem to be developing more advanced equipment and vehicles than previously known. Hal is then introduced to Faraday, who tells Hal he was hoping for someone better, but has to make do with him. Then he informs Hal of what brought the government to this point. German engineering being passed among allies after the war. Russia heading into space. America trying to catch up. Task Force X and one of their divisions, the Suicide Squad, facing the paranormal. And then finally, the arrival of an alien at an observatory several years back. And Hal, who has always wanted to go to space, may finally have his chance as he is told they are going to Mars. And then the issue ends with John Jones finally opening the book from the cult member using a key that Batman had provided when they met. Uh, reading it, he learns of a Viking who found himself on an island covered with dinosaurs. He was able to escape, but the book had one additional detail, a large presence that could dwarf planets and block out the sun. Upon touching the page, John is flooded with feelings of death, suffering, and despair. He learns that whatever the thing is, it's not on its way, but that it's already here. And that is story-wise where we will end New Frontier. Um, that felt like a good halfway point of it all. But before we end the episode, I have a little bit of random trivia that I felt I would share. Darwin came up with New Frontier based on a few books that he had read. There's a Tom Wolfe book and film adaptation called The Right Stuff, um, along with books from James Elroy due to his ability to insert fictional characters into real history. And so he was very much inspired to do a similar thing with superheroes. The first issue of New Frontier received a lot of flack from publishers because it involved characters that would be deemed inconsequential to the story, all die off immediately, and people wouldn't remember them. And the I, I, the losers. Exactly, yeah, the losers. Uh, but Dwayne but, said a gold. Oh, sorry. No, this is compliments what the rest of the note says. I cared about every single character. My heart sank when the dog died. Mm-hmm. But that that happens with any, anything with dogs, and like every character. It just felt like there was something more to it that certain comics don't have. In comics today, I haven't had for a while. So Too often when characters die, it feels like it's more, I don't know, like there's not anything special with it, really. It never feels like it's part of a big, bigger picture or anything. It's just, eh, we needed something to happen. Boost, uh, <laughs> to boost the ratings. Yeah. You know, and there's a reason that people say that they don't trust when a character dies because they always expect them to come back. Whereas with this book, there's not going to be a new frontier number two. <laughs> so you kind of know that when these characters are dead, they're actually dead. And when it comes to uh, making you care about characters, I'm going to make a Star Wars reference to uh, the Clone Wars. Uh, Dave Filoni and everyone, like all the writers, took a faceless army, fleshed them out into characters that elicit emotional responses, such as, but like with characters such as Domino Squad. I'm in a Star Wars group on Facebook called the Non-Toxic Star Wars uh, Fandom, I think. It's called. Which, Is such a thing possible? Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. 
it's actually it's, just, it's not that bad. And like one of the questions was that I was like one of the questions I was posted was who who's your favorite clone and why? And I just simply posted a a, a gif of uh, fives. Anyone who's watched Clone Wars will get what I'm trying to say is that what they did when did New Frontier come out originally? Two thousand four, I think it is. What Darren Cook did in 2004 and what Dave Filoni did with Clone Wars is pretty much I and I in that they made you feel about characters who, from the look of it, shouldn't be important. And and when the character, characters met their demise and that who were going to anyway, it's still you were still like punched in the gut. Yeah, for Dwayne, you know, when he was getting a lot of pushback from people about including the losers in his book. Darwin. Um, what did I say? Uh, Dwayne. Oh, Jesus. I misspelled it. It's even in my notes. It's Dwayne. <laughs> hey, we all oh, let me fix that. Darwin. Okay. So, <laughs> oh, God, one episode. So, yeah, he set a goal for himself that he would make people care about the losers and only needing to do one issue to do it. And if he succeeded in doing that, then writing characters like Superman and Flash would be easy. And I think he succeeded in that. Like I mentioned, there's a lot of characters who do not see the same amount of spotlight as some of the other characters in his book. And he's still able to make you care about so many, if not all of them. And he did just that with the losers, too. Yeah, like how, when it comes to Hal Jordan, technically he, unlike a lot of the characters, or a lot of the characters in the story that are crucial to the story, either don't have a book or has a book that is meandering right now. Mm-hmm. Where, like, when the current state of DC Comics, Hal has Green Lantern season right now, season two that Graham Morrison is writing, and that can you uh, vamp? I'm trying to think of the name of the artist. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, speaking of Hal, Darwin loves Hal. Um, he wanted him as one of the main characters because it was one of his favorites growing up. He loved not only what Hal was as a pilot and a space cop, but also thought his design was better than other heroes. You know, so many heroes are needing underwear and capes or different flaps or pockets. He liked Hal's design because it was very simple and slick. You know, there's a lot of black to his design and everything. So he also wanted to make him a hero again after what Hal had kind of become in you know later years um, as Parallax. He wanted to show the world why Hal was cool in the first place and try to remodel him for more current audiences. And I think he succeeded in doing that as well. And it's funny. I just remembered the artist's name, Liam Sharp. Liam Sharp, that's right. Which I feel horrible about because he follows me on Twitter. Oh, does he? Yeah, because I'm every time he posts something, I'm always con- like congratulating him and just complimenting him. Like a, he he is one of the best artists right now in comics. Like if you look up if you look up Liam Sharp Green Lantern, he's making it look like Gil Kane is be- back from the dead. <laughs> And write and drawing Green Lantern again. I was gonna say, I think the book I remember saying his first work was was it Countdown to Final Crisis? I think he was doing Lord Havoc and the Extremists. I think it was, but yeah, pretty sure that was it. He, I thought uh, was he also has a very great voice. Oh, does he? I'll have to find yeah. a clip of him. Yeah, it, his introduction uh, during uh. WonderCon in 2016, like when they announced Rebirth, was just some like really like he's Brit and he's British too, so like he has that accent. <laughs> so while you uh, talk talk trivia, I'll try to find a good clip. 
Okay. So yeah, speaking of uh, different artists, there is one artist that Darwin would speak with when it came to getting the realism of New Frontier as close as possible, um, specifically when it came to fighter pilots. This artist slash writer, you may recognize him from Madman. Mike Allred, does that ring a bell? Oh yeah, Mike Allred. He <laughs> he he's always doing something that's really good. Mm-hmm. I Zombie. Have you ever read his the run that he did with Dan Slot on Silver Surfer? I did not. No, that is hands down like the you just get you're getting your like bang for your buck with all like the ideas that are being thrown out. Like there's an issue where it had to do with imagination, like fictional characters like coming to life. And the chaos that would that would ensue, but it's Marvel, so the, the fictional characters coming to life. I think that if I recall correctly, they had to scale it down, huh. because you can't just have Harry Potter <laughs> running around, <laughs> or you can, you can they, they you can do Sherlock Holmes. I'll check it out. It's one of those things where I see his covers and I love his artwork. And Doesn't he do Fantastic Four with was it Fraction, or did he just do the covers of that? I think he did the covers. Yeah. Anyways, Michael Allred. Darwin had spoken with him because this is something I didn't know at the time. Uh, is that he was an air? Well, he is an Air Force veteran who was previously stationed in Germany. So Darwin went to him for a lot of the stuff that involved fighter pilots. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then lastly, uh, oh boy, this one. Yeah, so, the best class. Yeah. So DC had problems with Darwin's design of Wonder Woman. Um, As we mentioned before, Darwin has a very, a very good way of representing Wonder Woman as this, you know, kind of bigger built, tall, strong, defined woman. And DC did not particularly like that Um, during the period, especially the time this was being done. They were less thrilled with that version of Wonder Woman. According to Darwin, they would often use the word chunky. Yeah, which she's not. She's, she's not. not nothing <laughs> not even close to that. They were less thrilled of a Wonder Woman that actually matched the physique of the Greek goddess Amazonian warrior moniker. That oh my god, I put Dwayne again in the notes. Jesus, Josh, come on. You actually did it again in the same. Oh my god. Oh. <laughs> If I if I you know re-listen to this episode and notice myself saying Dwayne in anything in the past, I apologize. I'm going to have to go through the rest of my to make sure I catch it for episode two. When I did um, the second go around of Dual Shock Show with uh, Javon, I was just constantly getting things wrong left and right, and at a certain point, I just realized this is going to happen. I just can't control it. <laughs> yeah, I'm debating whether or not to leave this all in or just trying to edit it out. It's it's entertaining. It's entertaining. Yeah, at this point, I'm just leaving it in. I'm like, I don't have much energy to <laughs> fix everything I'm messing up in this episode. So, yeah, DC was not happy with uh, what a Wonder Woman should look like. And instead, DC was trying to get her more similar to what Michael Turner's Wonder Woman was looking like at the time. <laughs> in Darwin's own words, Wonder Woman was looking like basically a 14 year old with boobs bigger than her head. And if you've pulled up any of the artwork of what yeah. Wonder Woman would look like, it's not exactly a <laughs> a wrong. <laughs> I- <laughs> okay, so you've been on the on the Hypertime uh, Twitter account. You've been tweeting out certain panels. You should tweet out as a teaser for this episode the Michael Turner art. <laughs> I might need to, and just like 
tweet it out and just say you'll you'll see what where this is going or you'll see the context for this. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at it now. I'm just like, no, I I much prefer Darwin's take on Wonder Woman. Like, don't get me wrong, I like a a sexy looking Wonder Woman, but based on what she's supposed to be, that's not <laughs> who it is. But yeah, that's all I have for this episode. Alan, is there anything else you'd like to add? I am really looking forward to reading more of this. It's real good. It's real good. And I don't know if you've read it before, but Comixology has the special. Oh, the issue. deluxe edition? I don't know if it's the deluxe edition. Because that's the one I have. Okay. Yeah, you might look it through it. There is a special story that came out a little after New Frontier was released. I think it came out about the time the animated movie was released that has like separate stories set in the same world. If it's not in your collection that comiXology unlimited does have the single issue for that. So, you know, pull that up too. If, if you need it, cause it's, it's pretty good too. We'll do. All right. And with that, I think we'll cut this episode as part one of two. So thank you for listening. Um, as always, please rate and review wherever you listen to this podcast. Um, any and all love is appreciated. Please, if there's something we can do to make these episodes better, let us know. Or if you have any suggestions on what you would like us to talk about, we are always open for ideas. Um, you can throw us any of those ideas or comments on our Twitter at HyperTimePod, or you can email us at HyperTime, the number two podcast at gmail.com. I am on Twitter as well even though I've been trying to split my time between that and the hyper time Twitter a little bit more. My personal Twitter is J M I L L E nine, nine and Alan, where else would you like to stretch your stuff at? Follow me on Twitter at the Alan Muir, the two L's and M U I R. And I said, usually I share a tweet, a tweet that I'm proud of. And this one I made five hours ago today on the 19th. Not the Fox purchase went through for Disney. It's a real shame Michael Eisner wasn't with the company when it happened. And in parentheses, alien encounter. <laughs> I mean, they're not using the show building. They're not. And they they have like back when when Michael Eisner wanted to get like have that attraction, they had the alien license. It gets just crazy how this <laughs> stuff happens. <laughs> oh, also follow the VGU Twitter. VGU, VGU underscore TV and subscribe to the YouTube, YouTube channel. Part, one of these days that Clone Wars Re- Republic Heroes LP will be going up. Who knows by the time this episode releases it might. Because <laughs> we're recording this on September 19th and I can't remember when I have this episode scheduled to, to hit. It is September 19th right now and part one of New Frontier dropping on December 2nd. So Oh yeah. Then. Uh, then most likely will will be happening at that point. The <laughs> Life is Strange uh, Before the Storm LP should be go- happening with um, Emmett. Hopefully, again, hopefully, because it took a while again to do it for the old channel, the Lost Hour Games channel. So, oh, and uh, subscribe to the VGU.TV podcast. There'll be a link where you can find that. Where you can, you can find shows such as Players Club, which I just I realized not too long ago that if I just if I I can't that I can't tweet out anything about that show because. If I abbreviate it, it's PCP. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know. You might get more followers, too. 
maybe, maybe maybe not the ones you kind of want following, but and, and if I if I repeat it to just the PC podcast, we'll get like another case of not <laughs> not our, our demo, but you can also the other podcast that's in that feed is Win the Weekend News, the VGU Weekend News podcast that Graden web posts, and that I and route. Raul Contreras am on and hopefully by the time this, this episode goes up we'll have more content regarding end of generation and their thoughts about the beginning of the next gen yeah by the time this releases we'll actually have new systems in our hands well certain people Emmett is going for a uh, Oculus Quest 2 instead of uh, a PS4 PS5 <laughs> or Xbox Series X but yeah that's that's all I've got okay then with that I will bid everyone to do And we will see you further down the hyper time where we will have episode two of New Frontier. We will talk to you all later and hope you all take care. Bye.